Welcome to the Inkfeather podcast, which explores the worlds of sci-fi and fantasy books through those who bring them to life. Every week, we chat with authors and industry pros about their books, including new releases and old favorites. I'm Lauren Zurchin from the Inkfeather Collective, and this is episode 46, where we chat with best-selling author V.E. Schwab. So V.E. Schwab had an amazing book come out in October. It is called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and we actually recorded this two weeks before the book came out, but this past fall, I had one hell of a time. I got pneumonia. Um, frankly, the election was stressful for me. <laughs> I live in Pennsylvania, and we were like a swing state, so it was coming at me from all sides. Um, and also, my beloved heart kitty had to be put down, so she was dying during that time. So it was a rough last couple of months of the year, and I dropped the ball on a few projects, including my podcast. So I took a couple months break from it. So I have this interview, and it is such a good interview, and I had to post it. So it is the first interview of 2021, and I'm really excited that that's the case because um, the stuff we talk about is just fantastic. So basically, Victoria and I sat down and chatted about the evolution of this book. This book has been in her heart and mind for years, and she just talks about the struggles of birthing a book and a project that is so ingrained in you and so dear to your heart and what that means and what that was like. And then we talk about, um, you know, the self-doubt of publishing and writing. And um, we talk about joy and hope and, you know, finding those despite the struggles and, um, you know, the, the belief that you can struggle through anything and make it on the other side and, uh, you know, mental health and like balancing mental health and work. We talk about so much good stuff in this episode, you guys. Like we talk about Addie, but very loosely. We don't really talk like plot and specific stuff as much as we talk her writing journey and the evolution of this story. So this is honestly one of my favorite interviews to date because uh, v is wired like me. She wants to talk about the deep stuff and we really aren't afraid to kind of have a really good heartfelt conversation. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Um, I just wanted to give you another update about the podcast. Um, with the new year, I have actually outsourced the editing for the podcast, meaning I will be able to consistently bring it to you weekly. So um, I'm really excited about that because that means more content, more authors will have their books told about. Um, and hopefully on my end, I'll be able to actually start getting sponsorships because I'll have the consistent numbers. So I'm really stoked about it. I found a great person who's great at editing, and so he is going to help me with that. Um, but yeah, so you can look forward to this podcast. I am planning on releasing it every Wednesday. And um, I also will have another podcast coming out soon that I'm really excited about. And that is going to be called the Cultivating Creativity Podcast. So that is something I've also had in my head for a few years and I was thinking about evolving this podcast into that podcast, but then I was like, you know what? Books are such an integral part of who I am, and I have interviewed authors for over a decade, so why would I pull that away and add to this podcast? So, like, you know, because the other podcast is going to be me talking about creativity with with people from all walks of life, mostly professional creatives, but sometimes people who have creativity in their lives and the way they run their lives, but maybe have non-traditional jobs like like an influencer or a, a business coach or something like that. So 
But I'm also going to have like dancers and artists and photographers and, you know, basically professional creatives as well. So we're going to be talking about creativity and art, which is my favorite thing to talk about. But I and I was like, well, authors fit within that because they're professional creatives. But then I was like, but but I still have so many books and authors I want to talk about. So every other episode would be books anyway. So I might as well just keep them separate. So that's going to be launching in the next month or so. I'm just in the beginning stages of like pulling in my first few guests but I'm really excited about it. And I hope you guys will give it a chance. Um, you know, if you're listening to this and you're a book book nerd and that's all you are into, then totally I get it. And this podcast will be here weekly, like I said, but the other one will just be hopefully a little bit of weekly inspiration for you guys to, um, you know, to remind us why we make art, to remind us why creativity matters and to hear it from people who are, are doing it and making an impact in the world through, uh, their creative choices. So yeah, so that will be coming soon. Stay tuned. And um, I want to say, I don't want to say this episode is sponsored by because it's one of my projects, but there's something I really want to talk about. And I talked about it off and on last year uh, through a few episodes, but I commissioned at the beginning of last year, 20 different artists, most of who make art for book subscription boxes. Uh, and I commissioned them to illustrate two of my fantasy photography images each. So because of that, I was able to make this really cool fine art fantasy coloring book. Um, It's really cool because the covers on the inside front and back show the original photography, but it is basically the artist's interpretation of my art. Some it's very much verbatim, some it is a lot more creative license, but if you are a book person who enjoys bookish art, gets subscription boxes like Illumicrate or Owlcrate or um, Feilute or all of those, these artists, most of these artists have done something for most of those boxes. So you are familiar with them. And so it was such a really wonderful collaboration project for me. Um, yeah, so I did a pre-order in October and into November and I ordered extra after the pre-order. So I have them now. So if you go to inkfeathercollective.com, there is a shop and you can get this really high-end coloring book. Um, I have digital copies for those of you who are international that aren't in the United States that maybe want it but don't want to pay for the shipping because unfortunately shipping these days is high, but I have digital versions. And I also, because, you know, pandemic, isolation, not being able to visit with friends as much, I made some postcards so you could like color a beautiful image and then send it to your friend, uh, you know, send to someone a little note, or you could send it to them blank and let them color it. So I, I created these products. I'm really proud of them. The artists did an incredible job. It's such a beautiful um, collaboration and it's fun. I mean, adult coloring books are huge for a reason, especially during times of stress. It's wonderful to sit down and be able to color and kind of let your mind wander as you draw. By the way, don't mind the budgies talking in the background. They're happy birds today, so you can hear them. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just wanted to remind everybody who maybe wasn't aware or those of you who have heard of it but maybe didn't, weren't sure if there were extras available. I did extra order, so there are coloring books available. So go to inkfeathercollective.com and go to the shop in there and they will be there. So you can order them. And like I said, I have both physical and digital copies. Okay, so now on to our interview with Victoria V.E. Schwab. Uh, I hope you enjoy. Hi, 
Hi, V. Welcome to the Ink Feather Podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. It was fun. We just kind of were reminiscing about when we met. It was feels like a lifetime ago, especially considering the world shut down. But we met at San Diego Comic-Con, I think like three or four years ago. I was really lucky to be tour adjacent, that whole con. <laughs> like all the publicists, I'm friends with them, and they were like, come to the thing. And I was like, all right, cool. And so it was great. I got to like hang out with you at a fancy dinner. Well, it wasn't super fancy, but like a group dinner. And then we went to I think some panels and yeah, it was really, it was fun. It was fun actually getting to hang out with I, you. We live in such an isolated time right now. It just has me wondering when I'll get to have mm-hmm. these cool communal experiences again. But in the meantime, it, it has been really exciting because you know, by, by virtue of necessity, getting to have virtual experiences means getting to have experiences with people I might not necessarily get to because of our physical locations. Yeah, it's been really fun, especially talking to authors in the past few months about like launches and just virtual the accessibility because it's really cool that so many people now, if you want to go to an event, you can, you don't have to be at Books of Wonder in New York to go, you know what I mean? It's, it's, which is great. So, I mean, obviously there's, we would rather be in person, Yeah, (laughs) but it is, you know, we would definitely nice in that sense. But yeah, it. I'm glad we could just actually get the chance to talk today because you have a really incredible book coming out soon that I know you're excited about and like feeling anxious about and you're just... I was going to say the anxiety is, the anxiety is high up there with the oh, excitement. Oh, girl, it is so good though. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. It's a broad experience when you work on a book for like 10 years and you realize that that's a lot of a lot of self to put on paper. <laughs> so the book is The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and it's out October 6th. And kind oh. of just technically, <laughs> like you're like, oh, <laughs> soon, we're recording in like September 22nd. We're so- recording exactly two weeks before it comes oh. out. I'm excited for not you. that I count not that I know exactly how many hours it is at any <laughs> given point on any given day well and again you're in France and I'm on the east coast of the state so what is midnight you know like what is even exactly. <laughs> uh, time is a lie time is an illusion nothing nothing has any you know measurable quantity anymore so you were just saying like Addie has been with you for a decade kind of take us through her I'm calling it a her like like she deserves a, the book deserves a her this instead of an it her yeah by the way one of my best friends name is Addie which is so cool because I've never read an Addie hers doesn't have an e on the end but it's still like every time I read it's like oh Addie um (laughs) so anyways take us through kind of the decade like I don't want to say where'd you get your idea but just you know the 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 publishing journey of this book really of course yeah it's interesting this is and most of the time, a book takes me two to three years from conception to draft. I sit with an idea for probably about a year before I write it, mostly because I want to make sure I have all the nuts and bolts and things that will end up making a book in the end. For me, that's the ending, that's the voice, that's the tone, that's the plot. And for Addie, you know, you're right to ask, like, not where ideas come from, but because I think there's a fallacy in that where when we talk about that, we, we're treating an idea as a single entity. Mm-hmm. And for me, stories are made up of many, many ingredients. And so it's more like, where did you find the ingredients for this particular meal? Mm-hmm. How did it come together? For me, I, I was living in a an ex-prison warden's backyard in Liverpool, which is as strange as it sounds. I was living in a garden shed and, and it was not a great time. <laughs> Let's say that 23-year-old me made some questionable choices. <laughs> and so, but because I was quite miserable and quite just kind of stuck there, a housemate would drop me off in really random places for the day. And one day she dropped me off in the Lake District and I had about eight hours to just wander and hike. And I 
was kind of feeling a little disillusioned with my young adulthood and with my very, very, very beginning of my publishing career. At that point, my first novel wasn't out yet. And I I had just been mulling for a while about time and memory, and I knew I wanted to write an immortality tale. And I had just studied Peter Pan in college in a children's literature course. And I'd been struck by how sad it was as a story. By the end of the story, Peter is sitting on a rock and he's already beginning to forget mm-hmm. what's transpired over the course of the novel. And so I'd been thinking a lot about memory and I kind of wanted to write an inverted Peter Pan tale instead of a, you know, a young boy who forgets everything. I wanted to write about a girl who remembers everything and is forgotten. And part of that, I think in retrospect, I can look back and see that my grandmother was also suffering from dementia and had been for almost a decade and watching her forget my mother was so much more painful for my mother who was being forgotten. So all of this was swirling about my head and I was hiking and I was all by myself and I hiked to the very, very top of a ridge where I could see everything and absolutely no one. And I was so tired in that climb. And because of the way my brain works, I started thinking about how tired life would feel after a while if you could live forever and how lonely it would feel if you lived forever. And out of that, I started to wonder what kind of person doesn't feel those things? What kind of personality would it take to not succumb to that existential ennui that's so familiar to any immortality feel, you know? And that was the thing about Addie is that Addie is relentlessly hopeful She is the kind of person who, even in her darkest moment, thinks, but what if I saw something wonderful tomorrow? You know, that's what sustains her. That's this this line in the book, I saw an elephant in Paris, which Mm -hmm. is one of the first things that she says to the devil when he comes back after cursing her to be forgotten by everybody and offers to release her from the deal. And she's at a very low point. It's very early on. And she says no. And when he asks why, she says, I saw an elephant in Paris. She says, I didn't even know like what they would look like. And I saw this and I did this. And this has only been two years. So imagine what I'll do in 20. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, but it was born out of a very lonely hike on a hillside in the Lake District when I was 23. And from there, I would sit with the idea for the next eight and a half, nine years mulling over the relationship between this young French woman and the devil and her relationship to history and art. And it would change as I changed and their relationship would grow as I grew. And I would never write it. Every year I would check in with myself and I wouldn't feel ready. And I realized I was spite of writing it wrong. I felt like I couldn't do justice to this thing. And then something happened when I hit Henry's age. Henry's the young human man in the story, and he's so afraid of life passing him by. And I realized I was more afraid of dying without having written it than of writing it wrong. And so I sat down then at 2930 and started to write the book. I mean, perfect is the enemy of of done, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it really is. That's a good quote that's relevant here, but... Wow, I just thought, especially considering you have, I mean, granted, when you said when you started, your first book hadn't come out yet, which is kind of crazy to think about. We're talking about a book now that you were conceptualizing pre-publication and all of that, which is just really interesting. In the backdrop, in the backdrop of every other book I've ever written has been Addie. That's really interesting. But it's interesting, too, that you're like, you have a system almost in place. Obviously, every story is going to be different, but you know yourself with writing. And yet this book kind of was the exception. Yeah. And with every passing year, it got harder because, you know, two years after I started conceiving of it, I told my editor, I told my editor, Miriam Weinberg at Tor, who has worked on Vicious, Vengeful and Shades of Magic with me. And she would check in with me every six months or so and be like, so how's Addie coming? 
Huh. And I would make excuses and then I would go on tour and I would go on tour and talk about how I had this little seed of an idea that I was playing with so that by the time I went on tour last year, everyone in the audience already knew about Addie. Like everyone had been holding on to that excitement for me for years. <laughs> and that was so exhilarating. But in the time before I finished writing the book, it was almost paralyzing. Wow. And I was going to say, imagine the mental energy for you having things on the back burner. It's always just stewing back there and just that guilt or that fear or that excitement, you know, that the emotional burn that's on a slow, yeah. low simmer going on, you know, it's almost like Addie in that sense, writing it was a release. It almost sounds cathartic. It was cathartic, but at the same time, like I would be lying if I said it was a pleasant process. I definitely wrote from a place of fear. I wrote from a fear of never finishing this book. And mm. so thinking about Addie and mulling over Addie and this story and living with this story was enjoyable. Getting the story onto paper, that first draft, was gruesome. It was six months to a year of every single day wondering, why am I doing this? It isn't worth it. I won't do this story justice. It's better if I never write this book than if I write this book and everybody says, yeah, it wasn't worth those 10 years. Or yeah, you should have stuck with what you were doing. Like I'm already my worst enemy in so many ways. But for this book, it was hellish. I was so afraid for so long of not pulling it off. And then over the course of revising it, I guess that initial vision started to align. Things started to come into focus. And I mean, I've never felt prouder or more relieved of anything, but it was a process of every single day I was my own enemy. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking you have to feel such a release, but just that it's such a creative's mindset, isn't it? This <laughs> imposter syndrome of like, it doesn't matter. Everyone will hate me, even though everyone's yeah. rooting for you, you know, like, Every, I mean, I am, I am like a queen of self-doubt. Like if you ask me what my greatest fear in this world is as a creative, it's the phrase, her last book was better. Oh. Like it, it, every day I wake up with that fear. Like I'm working on Threads of Power now, which is the next arc of Shades of Magic. And yeah. all I can think is like, I can't do the same thing twice, nor do I want to. But every day I carry with me this fear that people are going to be like, mm, should have stopped at three, <laughs> you know? <laughs> wow. So it's like each series, each book has almost its own version exactly. of that fear too, because now it's like, I'm revisiting these characters. How can I do like this world? What can I do? Or how's it going to be? Or or, oh my God, the book that I wrote after the first thing that I drafted after Addie LaRue. Moral of the story, all of my processes are fraught. But like the story that I wrote after Addie LaRue, having to follow up Addie and realizing like the only way it was going to work was almost from a dissociative perspective. I had to create something that was so, so different from Addie that my brain could not compare the two things that I could not say, here's an apple and here's an apple. It, and I try to do that with all of my books, right? I try to create really unique and different stories so that my readers aren't tempted to make apples and apples comparisons that, that I'm sure that some readers like some of my books far more than others or don't like any of them, whatever it is. But my goal is to dissuade that kind of comparison. That makes sense. And I would think too, you actually beat me to it. I was going to say, you know, it's not really often a matter of good and bad. It's a matter of taste. It's a matter yeah. of how that's, that's the wonderful thing about reading is the discussions of like, I loved this or I hated this and having that connection with a story. And so even if person A doesn't connect as strongly, mm -hmm. person B, it might be their favorite book ever. You know, it just. I tell you, like so much of writing 
does not get easier. Like so much of it does not get easier. The one thing that I have found as a neurotic creative that has gotten easier is the ability to live with people not liking your books because the the more books you write and, and the longer you're in this, the more you find the readers for whom that was exactly the book they needed. And as long as your book finds someone and for them, it's the book they needed, you can disregard everyone else. And I don't mean for that to sound dismissive, but the thing is like, if my books don't become that for somebody, that's fine. They can go find another book that will be that for them. So it's like you make peace with the fact that if you try to please everyone, you'll please no one. And so you really just want to be the perfect book for someone. And by focusing that creative lens, that spotlight, you really help yourself not try to please everyone in the audience. But it's still kind of interesting because it's coming from a vulnerable place still you're still having to be vulnerable you're finding those people but it's still finding those people of course and especially with a book like Addie where I put so much of myself into this one Mm -hmm. and I'm usually pretty good at not doing that and so that I can at least a little bit mentally divorce like I can't divorce from the effort that's just I put 110% of my effort into every single thing that I create whether it's like a contract work for Scholastic when I was 25 or you know Addie LaRue now but I will say that Addie was such a personal book that took so much from me or I gave so much to it. Like the grieving process after that book was turned in was like six straight months of just feeling like I had an open grave that I, cause I had lived with this character and just almost engaged in daily dialogue with her and asked her how she would react to things and how she would see the world. I had those goggles on huh. for so long, but like this book is different from every other book I've ever written in that way. So I, it does feel very raw. And I think I'm going to have to be very, very careful in how I engage with critique on it because I want to make sure that readers always have that space. But I also know that there's nothing else I could have done to make this book any truer to the vision that I had. I feel like anyone would be sensitive of criticism and but it sounds like this one especially so for you. And interesting too, like when you just said you felt like it was a grave, because oftentimes I describe creating as, you know, it's almost like giving birth, but yours is almost like a death, even though it was a birth, it was a birth and a death at the same time. It was a lot of things. In birthing something, there was definitely a loss. I think most creatives have this kind of fog after you create something where you feel a little bit untethered. You always feel untethered Mm. after the end of something just because it's so immersing for so long. Mm. But I just felt lonely. Wow. Because Addie was finally out of your head and away. It was just, I knew she was never going to exist in my head in that way for me anymore. Like there was an intense relief of just like, oh, thank God the story's down on paper. Cause I felt like I was having to hold it in my head for, you know, for so long. But yeah, I just missed her. I missed, I missed carrying that story for just myself Mm. for a really long time. Yeah, that's interesting. Such an interesting battle to fight with ourselves too, like as as creatives, because I'm thinking like, obviously, the desire to bring it into the world was stronger. And that thing in your mind of I don't want to die having not written this book. (laughs) Which sounds so melodramatic. No, but uh, it's melodramatic. But like, no, I truly thought I am gonna die. And this will be the book that I never wrote and only talked about. (laughs) No, I've talked to Christopher Paulini about this. We were talking about like, he has like file cabinets of ideas. And he's like, I will never write all of these books. And it it pains him because he's like, I just I'm one person, you know, and even if my his writing's a lot faster now than it used to be. But still, he's like, I'm in my late 30s. How long am I going to live? I will never write all these ideas. And the thought of that 
is hard as an artist. If you are a creative, you're always filling up as you're putting out in theory. And so there's always going to be endless ideas. So I get that. But it's interesting that like this was the one for you that had that resonance. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's weird. This is the first time I this this is I'll say something that made all of my editors extraordinarily nervous. When I finished <laughs> Addie, it was the first time and I'm a, I'm somebody who never stops working. Like I just I I have a compulsive need to create. I mean, I've been in the industry for just about 10 years and I have 21 books. I say you are extremely prolific. Yeah. yeah. I just like can't stop. And I'm not actually a very fast creator. I'm just Consistent. a relentless yeah, creator. But I will say that when Addie was done, done, like through revisions and everything was the first time I thought to myself, if I never write another book, I'll be okay. Wow. Like oh. not in, not in a financial way, but in a like emotional way. Of, yeah. Yeah. Emotionally, like it filled something that I never thought would be filled. Hmm. Gosh, what a, what a lovely emotional conversation around. Uh, frankly, this book really does tug because even though you have this really interesting story that we're following along, you know, you do connect with her loneliness and the things you created, but also just like the writing is very lyrical. Like as I was reading this book, I kept like screenshotting <laughs> phrases from this book that were just beautiful. Like I was actually telling a friend about this book. I read her the blurb and she's like, oh, that's really awesome. And I was talking to her yesterday. And I was like, yeah, I can't talk. I'm, I'm prepping for my interview. I'm reading that book. And I sent her, I think it was the beginning of chapter two. And it was just like this like sing-songy, beautiful. And I was like, here, just here's, here's a sample. And she was like, oh my God, I can't wait to read this. Like it was just. And thank you. And I started in poetry. And so cadence and rhythm and word and flow have always been really important. Mm. And for loss for so long, I couldn't figure out the voice for this book. And it wasn't until I found that third person present almost resonance that I wanted to create a kind of hypnotic atmosphere. So if you were to read the book aloud, it would kind of have the almost the rise and fall of like a, a canoe in a water, mm. just kind of like a bobbing sense. That feels um, right. Yeah. It is just lyricals, the right word that pops into my head as I'm reading it, even in the moments where it's dialogue, it still feels that way, the way the story moves forward. So you did it well with that, for sure. So you were kind of saying that you were wondering about Addie through time. Um, I mean, it has a fantastical element with what is happening, but like a lot of this is grounded in reality, in a sense. Yeah. Um, how was the research process for this? Was it interesting to have to delve into like, you know, because you could have picked anything at any time, really. I mean, obviously, she was born in, this, in the early 1700s, but still, mm -hmm. there's a lot of world between in the past oh, yeah. 300 years, you know what I mean? Like, how did you decide when to pick and where to pick and... It was a huge challenge because I think there's this temptation for it to just become a travel log, right? Mm -hmm. But I needed to find a way to direct her to kind of create, um, not blinders, but to kind of create a guide system so that it didn't just become all over the place. And so I really tried to lean into Addie's French identity and to remember that, you know, yes, she has an, she's immortal. So technically she can survive anything. But if you look at why she makes the deal with the devil in the beginning, it's not so she can travel the world. It's so she can live forever because she's afraid of running out of time. She's somebody who really desires comforts, who desires art and culture, but also safety. And so I had to look at, as I was tracing her timeline forward, why would she choose to move where would she choose to go? How is her world unfolding and broadening for her? And, and at what point? And then when she does travel, you know, she's limited because she isn't actually a ghost. She's forgettable, but she has no paper. She has no documentation. So she really can only stow away. And then where would she feel safe going? 
you know, because just because she can survive doesn't mean she can't suffer and be hurt. And so I tried to use that to kind of guide and her French pride. You know, she does come back home after after being away for the first world war and experiencing some guilt about not being there to help in some way. She does go home for World War Two. One of the most fun things about the story is I for a very long time, I was like, okay, you either have to choose. She either has to be entirely fictional or she has to be entirely historical, right? Either everyone she engages with has to be a historical person that really lived or none of them. And then I realized that I didn't have to pick one or the other. And so what I did is about half of the people that she engages with are historical, Hmm. real figures, just as half the places that she goes in New York present day are real places. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. other half are not. And I want you to never be able to tell which is which. Yeah, that's really interesting because obviously there's a few like in her past stories when we're finding it like she's at like salons with famous writers and I'm like, oh, that's cool or whatever, you know, or like the big thinkers of the day and there's names that pop out. But now I'm thinking if half of them, like, who are these people? Like Now I'm like, which ones are they if I don't know their names already? What a fascinating and interesting concept and way to play because honestly, we will never know everyone on this earth and most people will remain anonymous to us. So in theory, they could have lived. We don't know. You could be and creating, that's the thing. you know, I try to fold the fictional ones in in such a way that you could just believe it all of a pattern of a tapestry. And so even with like, for instance, I worked with this in terms of places in New York City. And so, you know, some of the places that she goes, like the fourth rail is obviously not a real place, but la- so but cool. a pinball arcade behind the laundromat is. Like it's a perfectly real landmark in New York City. And so trying to kind of balance out the two so that you feel like her version of history is still really grounded and realistic without being so bound to historical figures that I didn't get to tell the story I wanted to tell. Wow. And I loved, I loved how you like dotted her anonymously, but yet she was still there. Like she, and that's one of the wonderful things that, you know, you do to play with this because it's the idea of if everyone forgets me, how can I be remembered? You Mm -hmm. know, and, and, you know, how Addie, Addie plays with that by planting seeds and helping people write down ideas or make notes of yeah, it's really fascinating to for her to wander through the world and know that that song or that painting was her child in a way, you know? Well, and it was one of the reasons I gave her the seven freckles, because then even in abstract art, you know, it was something that could be a callback and a through note for her in that way. But it really all came down to this concept. A line in the book is that ideas are wilder than memories. And, you know, as creatives, we think about inspiration a lot. And oftentimes we can't pinpoint exactly where it came from. I cannot pinpoint the moment on that hike in the Lake District when I thought of Addie. And so the whole idea behind her as a muse is kind of that you don't remember her, but you remember something of her influence. And so I'm always fascinated by the personification of deetic powers, right? Whether it's gods, devils, muses, death. And I had been reading early on in the process. I remember I read Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, mm. which has a section exploring this idea of creative inspiration and this idea that if you don't pay attention yes. Story, it will choose somebody else. I knew you were going to say that. Like the yeah. ideas are almost like thought bubbles that if you don't <laughs> grab them, they're going to bounce onto someone exactly. else. Yep. And which was a concept that terrified me yep. as a creator, but also like 
it just is was a personification moment where I just thought as I was reading that, well, what if it what if it was somebody who chose somebody else, you know? And I also wanted to make Addie a muse because it positioned her and the devil in parallel lines. The devil is a patron of the arts and she is a cultivator of the arts. Mm. Yeah, their their dynamic is just <laughs> so fun. I just they were fun to write. I have 10 years of dialogue snippets. Oh my gosh. I go through and it's it's funny. I had so I kept a file for 10 years in like a Scrivener file, a Word document file where I would just drop bits of dialogue. <laughs> and then when I sat down to write the book two years ago, I opened up that file. I took one look at this page after page after page of snippets. And then I deleted the file and I just decided like these were all previous iterations of them. And sometimes if you get tethered to past iterations mm -hmm. of an idea, you don't carry the idea forward properly. So I just decided whatever dialogue needed to come back would come back. Wow. Oh, that actually gives me the, the creeps a little bit, like the chills, like the that. Wow. Girl, you are so brave and vulnerable for that. Like, seriously, I know you're like, I am crazy with this and I'm scared. But like, seriously, like. As someone who is a professional creative, that causes me anxiety to hear that. Like, oh, even yeah. though you're not wrong, I get what you're saying, but oh my God. Yeah. To be very honest, I got so overwhelmed. Like, yeah. how do you look back through 10 years of notes? That's and, and you remember I had gone from being 22 to 32. Like, yeah. you, there's so much growth, but also Addie's character had changed. You know, I had found that stubborn hope thread, this idea of belief in a better tomorrow. And Luke's character had really gone from this very amorphous, the devil's character had gone from this very amorphous kind of God type to somebody much more fickle and jealous and childish. And so, you know, I, I had to trust those past iterations might hold me back a little bit more than they would carry me forward. No, that, I mean, it definitely makes sense. It's just, I think as people, we aren't brave enough often enough and it's hard. I actually have a tattoo on my wrist. Mm -hmm. It's Vici for Latin. It's Veni Vidi Vici and it means I, yeah. con and it means I conquered. And yep. the idea of it is like to conquer my life and not just like ride it out. Mm -hmm. And the idea of that, it's because it scares me sometimes to like, okay, oh. you've got to seize it. You've got to like, not just float, but you have to make those hard choices sometimes. And, mm -hmm. and it's going to be for the benefit of you but it I mean that's the hope isn't it I have a Latin tattoo do you that's cool I am in venium out faxium which essentially means either I will find a way or make my own mm -hmm. and I feel like again just like yours like it's a mantra right yeah. it's a, it might not be an obvious path and maybe even if there is a path it's not the right one for you I feel like these personal mantras they guide us right especially as creatives and they push us and there always be reminders to not take the trusted and tried route yeah I mean, it's often the path less traveled, right? It's often yeah. the more interesting path for sure. Especially in a creative industry where it can be really tempting to look at somebody else's path and think that's what mine should look mm -hmm. like. And then you realize that there are no archetypal paths in this game. Yeah, no, there's truth to that. You know, it's interesting too. One of the things I love about you, your online presence is you're very candid about mental health and your struggles with this and about that creative balance in your life. So it's I love that you're always very comfortable talking about that because I think people need to hear these things and I think people can relate. So I, you know, I'm glad that you're able mm -hmm. and comfortable to talk about those things. I mean, here's the thing. It's really interesting. I started in this industry quite young. 
I was 19 when I got a literary agent and I was 22 when I sold my first book. And at the time, that's to say, it's not like a brag. I was way in way too big of a hurry. But at the time, there was no transparency. You would pull up social media and everyone would only be talking about their victories and their successes and their good Mm -hmm. news. And it was a really misrepresentation of the creative process because it only focused on the end (laughs) and only on the good ending. And I remember feeling so desperately lonely with that because as you've probably been able to guess from our conversation so far, I struggle a lot with creativity and with imperfection and with this idea doing work and having to do something wrong in order to do it right. And I always just felt intensely lonely. And I went on a writer's retreat at the very beginning of my career and everyone sat around and they were being so honest and they were talking about how hard it was and they were talking about the normal day-to-day difficulties. And all I could think is why would you not talk about this online? Because if I felt lonely and I felt alone, I guarantee there are other people out there that do too. And when we only talk about the good, we create this fallacy that if you're struggling, it's a reflection of your creative ability and not of the fact that things are hard. And so from there, I just kind of thought, I mean, at the time I was like, I'm not going to have a career. Nobody was reading my books that would go on for several years. So I thought, what do I have to lose? I'm just going to at least be honest, you know, and I got a lot of flack from it from some authors who would message me privately and be like, you shouldn't talk about that stuff. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. You shouldn't like, you know, don't mar the image, right? But I was like, but this is the thing, right? Whether you've written one book or no books or a hundred books, like every time you sit down, it's still hard. Yeah. Like it's still difficult. And I remember asking Neil Gaiman really early on, like, do you still struggle with self-doubt? Like you're one of the most established fantasy authors out there. And he said, every blank page. And I thought like, it never goes away. So Mm -hmm. why do we pretend like it goes away when you sell a book or when you have a book come out? Like, why do we do this disservice? And also what I discovered was that my readers became even more invested in my books when they knew what went into them. Yeah, I mean... I am enjoying Addie immensely and hearing the story just makes me appreciate it more. (laughs) That's my goal. It really does. Like, I mean, obviously I wanted to talk to you to promote the book, but I'm so glad that this is the direction this conversation went like into our souls here about (laughs) art and making this, you know, paper baby that happened to kill you at the same time. It's just death by a thousand paper cuts, isn't it? Oh my gosh. But no, that, I mean, that's very relevant. I, I remember it was said in a funny way, but like Jim Butcher posted, he's like, that's right, Jim, the 27th book sucks just as much as the first or something along those lines. And I just remember thinking like, well, here you go. Here's someone who has a very well established character story plot line. And he's just being candid, being like, yeah, this freaking sucks right now. Like, you know, like, like you said, it's it's nice to see that. And I think you're right. It makes it relatable. And it and honestly, it does by relating and not comparing yourself to someone who struggles, but to be able to get that, it almost reduces that comparison trap because you're like, oh, I don't have to be perfect or be on that path. I can just be on my own path and do the journey as it comes and deal with my struggles and see where it leads me. It's so hard to get through all of the murk and mire in your head and get something down on paper without being made to feel even lonelier through the process of seeing other people not struggle. You know, like at least, you know, you're not alone. Like there's nothing I can do to make the process easier for anyone else. And there's nothing I can do to make the process easier for myself, it seems. But but I can make it less lonely. Yeah. Other than, I guess, the really obvious ones of, you know, we hope it does well. What are your hopes for Addie? Like, what are you what are you really hoping that readers get out of the book? 
I have no idea, right? No, I hope that people forgive me if they've read my other books for taking chances, right? Like the thing is, before I wrote the book, my greatest fear is how different it was from all my other books. And then after I wrote the book, I thought, that's not a weakness. That's a cool thing. Mm -hmm. Like, but it is definitely the farthest branch on my tree in one direction. Yeah. And I, I hope people will give me that. I hope people, even though it's not full of magical action battle sequences or super villains, like I just hope people will give me that and understand that I can be both of those things. But as readers, here's the thing, like I never wanted this year for myself, for the world, for anything. This year is just a hellscape, right? And I never wanted this book to come out this year because I worked so hard for so long and I spent a lot of time very, very sad that this book was coming out this year. And then what started to happen as people read advanced copies is that I started to realize that this is exactly the year for a book like Addie because it's a book about stubborn hope and defiant joy and the belief that you can survive anything because you're strong enough and also because if you can hold on long enough, it will get better. And I think as much as I wouldn't want this year for anyone or for anyone's work, that I've made peace with that. And so because of that, I really hope that people find some kind of solace or release or escape or joy or just momentary calm in the storm while reading this book. I mean, that makes sense. It fits. And it's funny because even though you're saying the hope and her joy and the thought of the idea of it getting better is obviously a very tangible theme throughout the book. Still, that aside, just the interactions, just her experiences throughout her ages are just generally enjoyable to read. Like it's a great, I have really easily escaped into this story. It was not hard to read. It was not hard to engage or connect with these characters. It's really been a pleasure, honestly. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. I mean, it was a fun book to write. Like it was really desperately fun in the moments when I wasn't banging my head against the wall. Um, So what are you banging your head against the wall with now? You said you're back, you're back in... You're back. Are you back with our characters that we love, or is this a whole new I, series? Yeah. Or tell, tell us a little bit about this if you can. Yeah, I mean, you don't so, have to give us details, but no, yeah, I'm working on Threads of Power, which is a cumbersome beast. My publicist and I have decided that all of my books are a kind of animal, and so the book that I just finished that I can't talk about yet is basically a feral cat. And the Threads of Power books feel like a rhinoceros, right? They're like this giant, cumbersome. I have I bring so much emotional dialogue to them from the fact that I'm five years older. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a slightly different person. The thing is, books become static entities and we as creatives continue to grow and change. And so I have a lot of fear about that. I have a lot of fear that people won't like the new series. So what I'll say about it is it's set seven years after the end of Shades of Magic, the end of Conjuring of Light, rather. And if a character survived a Conjuring of Light, then they're a substantial character in the new series. They're not like a cameo. They're they're integral to the plot. But there are also three new protagonists, one introduced in each book. And so it's not going to follow the same kind of trilogy structure. There are three books, but it's mm. not going to be that classic beginning, middle, end. Gotcha. Um, I want it, the reason it's called Threads of Power is I want it to almost feel like these threads which start out separate and begin to weave together into a larger tapestry. 
Whether I'm able to pull that off, I have no idea because I'm still working on it. But it certainly feels good to be back with characters that I love and have missed, even if it is like so much me up in my own head about, am I doing them right? Am I doing them justice? Will anybody like this? Is it too light? Is it too dark? Like, is the plot strong enough? Of course the plot's not strong enough. It's <laughs> so the goblins in your head are dancing the around. Goblins are back. The goblins are back. So yes, that's what I'm working on right now. I got the Illumicrate special edition box. Oh. It's so good. There's so much cool stuff from yeah. that series, and there's like a little you, which is hilarious. I know. I love it. I love it. It's the like. It's just I get to see the content of all those boxes before they get like I finalize them. Yeah. Like I give. My, my go ahead. And it's always such a pr intense privilege to see what goes into these boxes. It's just such a joyful thing. The fact that this fandom exists mm. is just so incredible. And I think we are really good at retconning and being like, well, it was always a really big series. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. When Darker Shade of Magic first came out, I was in graduate school in Edinburgh at the time. So I remember this keenly. When it first came out, the publisher so underestimated the interest in the book that they underprinted it. And it was out of print for the first three and a half weeks that it was on shelves. So it didn't exist. And like, wow. this was not a book that was a bestseller out the gate. Like it, it just, it wasn't. It grew really slowly and steadily over the course of that first year. And it has been a fandom built entirely by its readers. And I say that because look, there are books out there that a publisher is going to throw a million dollars at and make it a bestseller, yeah. whether or not it would have found an organic fandom. But I have been so privileged that my fandoms have been entirely organic. They have grown out of passionate readers. And it's a really specific kind of passionate reader who not only likes a book, but then presses it into a friend's hand and says, now you read it too. Oh yeah. I've definitely recommended that series. Definitely. Because I was like, Parallel Londons, and they're gray and they're white and this is what the black means at all. And I was like trying not to do it. I was like, yeah. it's so good. You know, because uh, especially as someone who reads fantasy all day, every day, pretty much, you know, when something feels different and interesting and even like Kel's coat and just like the way the characters connect and everything. There's so many parts in this book that just make it a joy to read. And it's such a fun adventure to go on. Man, that... no pressure. Now I'm trying to do threads of power and all I'm going to think about. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, like make you feel bad, but like, it's just wonderful There's because. No winning. There's no winning in my brain. You're fine. I've had this discussion a lot. You have, you have some groundwork laid though. You don't have to start from scratch. You know that the groundwork at least has had a good response. You know what I mean? Now you get to play within those boundaries you've created in a new way, but it's not like, I mean, I get it. We're always like that, no matter where we're at, like, oh, it's gonna suck or no, anything positive. Well, that part's gonna suck. It's like, well, exactly. but I mean, you know that people connect with this world and, and the ideas that it presents. So, you know, I'm sure people are I'm excited. I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna figure the rest of it out. Right now, it's just like a jumbled mess on my floor, but I mean, so are all stories in the beginning. Yeah. Have you had any time to read or any good book recs you'd recommend? We always like to ask authors. Read a lot. Oh, I read probably 100 to 120 books a year. I feel like it's part of my job to really be in the know and to understand. I will say two of the best books that I've read this year are T.J. Clune's The House in the Cerulean Sea. <gasps> I haven't read that, but I have it. Oh, my God. Like a big gay sweater. Like I... that's all like the most heartwarming, like if there's a book we need in 2020, like that book, it's I, so delightful. I it's just wonderful so things. It's, it's, it's just, it sounds good too. It's also just like warm and, and I'm not like a warm and fuzzy reader normally. 
I'm not normally a warm and fuzzy writer. I'd say Addie LaRue is the closest thing to hope punk I will ever write. But I, there's just something about that book. I read it. I gave it to my parents. They both read it. I like found my dad like standing at the kitchen counter crying over his Kindle when he finished it. Not from any sad feelings, just because he was so happy with it and he didn't want it to end. Like it's that book. And then the other one is Britt Bennett's The Vanishing Half, which is not genre, but it's historical. And I've discovered Britt Bennett this year and she's just such an extreme talent. Her writing is incredible. But yeah, I I mean, I read a lot of books. I'd say those are the two that have left a most recent lasting impression on me. Wow. I'm also reading Rebecca Roanhorse's Black Sun right now. And that's phenomenal. That's the new that's a new series, right? Yeah, it comes out the 13th of October. Yeah, I was gonna say I know it's a new series because I really liked her Trails of Lightning books a lot. Yeah. This is fabulous. Oh, good to know. Wow, those are great, Rex. All three of those. Those are very, like, well sold. <laughs> I'm like, all right, yeah, cool. I got to pick up I TJ's books. <laughs> I know. It's great. It really is, especially when you connect so strongly. You're just like, you have to read this. So. Well, the thing is, I don't know about you. I'm a mean reader, meaning, like, I feel mediocre about most things that I read. It just takes a lot these days to capture my attention, to, like, make me turn off my writer brain and be mm. able to just absorb a story and not be picking it apart. But that means that if I read a hundred books in a year, I love five of them passionately and I will hand sell the sh- like the crap out of those five. You could swear. It's fine. I get oh. it. <laughs> I never know. I never know. No, I should have prefaced you. I'm like, you could, I, well, I was censoring myself too, because you were, and then I was like, maybe she doesn't swear, but oh, I know I she swears. Like I know you swear. That's why I was like, I don't know why we're doing this, but that's so funny. No, I get that. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm weird. Like, I, I use certain, I reread a lot because I use things to like numb my brain out, which isn't necessarily healthy, but like, I'm like, I escape back into familiar books that are fun and I know I'm going to enjoy. And What's so, your favorite reread? <sighs> it depends. I really enjoy reading like urban fantasies. It's just yeah. fun for me to just escape into urban fantasies. Yeah. I don't know why. I, I don't know if it's because I don't read a lot of them for review as often. So they're just, I don't know if yeah. they're just like, I don't want to even say guilty pleasure because I, I don't even think that's a thing in my world. No, but I understand. It's a comfort. Yeah, it is. It's just, or just, I don't know. There's just some that I just think are funny and sexy and silly. And they're just, you know, it's fun to kind of just, that's like escapism because I'm like, yeah, yeah I will never hook up with a vampire. And that really sounds fun. <laughs> like that's, let's see what that's about, you know, <laughs> like, or whatever. So, yeah. but no, it, it just depends. And I'm, I'm really lucky that I get to, you know, chat with you guys and I get to read often early. So it's really fun to connect with those stories too and knowing I'm going to interview the authors it's always really fun to kind of see what as I'm reading feels really fun and enjoyable so there's always something good but yeah it's it's funny because I do have that emotional like up and down like you do and it, it for me it's always when it's always like specifics in fantasy that feel fresh yeah because it's everything's been done all and so it's like how is there a new twist on something especially like elemental magic a lot of the time yeah so that's that's kind of where I'm at but that but yeah, V, thanks for talking Addie and emotions and, you know, wonderful things. This was actually a really, really great chat. And I think, so you know, I think even though it was digging into your your journey with Addie LaRue, I think it will give a lot of like creatives heart and just say like, you know, you're not alone. The process can be hard, but it's also beautiful and wonderful. And I hope so. Worth That's what I want to take away from that. Yeah. And and the book really is just such a pleasure to read. And just from the, all the people I've talked to who've read it early, it's just everyone is just loving this book. So you should be very proud of it. I mean, I know you said you are, but you really should. From a reader's perspective, you should be very proud of this book. I am. You know, I don't think there's a single thing I would have done differently. And so for that, like, 
I have to make peace with every other part of this because I truly believe I did my best. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. Yeah, this was great. Okay, guys, stay tuned soon. We will have another episode coming up shortly. But for now, this is Lauren and V signing out. Bye. Bye.